This is a Federal News Network podcast. Women federal employees are less likely than men to stick around should a good job offer come from somewhere else. That's one finding of new research by Eagle Hill Consulting. Researchers found the pandemic and the way it scrambled how people work has sparked what they call a great reevaluation. Here with more, Eagle Hill's CEO, Melissa Jezior. Ms. Jezior, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. And you've been following closely people's work reactions and work attitudes throughout the pandemic. And are there special reactions, special issues for the female side of the federal workforce? Yes. So in the research that we released last week, it turns out both men and women working for the federal government say they feel burnt out. And it's pretty balanced. I think women is 59 percent. Men are 56 percent feeling burnt out. But what's interesting is the reasons they cite for why they feel burnt out are different. So men are more likely to cite workload as their primary source of burnout, whereas women tend to point to lack of communication, lack of feedback and support. Interesting. And does the telework figure into this? Because there are so many opinions about telework. Some people never want to leave it. Some people can't wait to leave it. Others want to do both. Is that a factor in all of these uh, attitudinal findings? It absolutely could be. One of the findings for women is also that connection plays a part in there or their lack of feeling connected plays a part in them feeling burnt out. So you could draw the connection, no pun intended, that telework makes it harder for people to truly connect with one another. Right. I read a story just the other day in one of the national newspapers that people are getting kind of Zoom burnout. A lot of people don't like looking at themselves when speaking with other people. And some people get used to it. Some people never really do. And so I imagine that's a factor in the telework equation. For sure. I also think that who you end up connecting with, gone is the water cooler running into someone at the lunchroom or whatnot. You have to be very intentional with who you talk with. And sometimes that creates challenges, I think. Right. And less spontaneity. What other findings stand out to you from the research? Well, I think one other thing that stands out that supports some of this research that we're just talking about is that we're about to release more research on burnout as it relates to public versus private sector. And what we're finding is that the government workers are far more burnt out than their private sector colleagues. So I think 65% of government workers report burnout versus 49% of the general population. Well, what is burnout? Let's define the terms here a little bit first. I think burnout is about how people are feeling overwhelmed, not able to feel like they're delivering at their peak performance, feeling tired, disconnected. I think that's how we are looking at burnout. And I think we look as well at some of the factors that contribute to burnout, such as workload, lack of communication, lack of feedback, lack of support, lack of connection. And maybe the sustained sense of that feeling is what makes burnout. For sure. Everybody feels that way for an hour or two or occasionally Absolutely. for a day. Absolutely. Yes. It is the persistence. Yes. And, agreed. And maybe just briefly review the survey methodology that you used. It was a national poll done by Ipsos of over a thousand federal workers. So you contract out the polling and you get a sample that is considered projectable across the population. Exactly. So more people in the new numbers show more people in the federal government are feeling burned out relative to the private sector. 
The question then is, what is your best advice for federal managers who have to deal with this? Because the return to the office is haphazardly occurring, and it varies from agency to agency. So what should managers be thinking about? What actions can they take? Great question. I think federal leaders must understand at a deep level the issues that facing their workers in their agencies and then devise a tailored employee experience that will keep their talented and committed feds. So, you know, feds are typically mission-driven people. So I think you can keep them if you work at it. So a couple of thoughts are doubling down on workplace flexibility. I think the private sector has caught up a lot to the federal sector in terms of allowing flexibility. So I think getting a lot more creative in terms of what more can the the government offer. I think engaging with employees to figure out the precise cause of burnout and developing targeted plans to address some of those problems. Also making performance management about a productive two-way feedback and career development and coaching would be helpful. And then last but not least, I think just finding great creative ways to express appreciation. Interesting. And are there good examples of companies doing these things in the private sector as we try to get people back that weren't already back, such as in the service and restaurant industries and so forth? Yes. I mean, I think this is a question the whole world is dealing with as we're all going back from a pandemic and we're going into a hybrid environment. I think lots of different organizations are trying different things. I don't know if anyone has completely got it right yet. And getting back to the question of the issues for female employees versus male employees in the federal government, you mentioned very different drivers of the feeling of being disconnected or burned out, whatever the case might be. Men in general cite the workload. Women cite communications and other maybe less tangible items. So it seems like sensitive managers or managers that care about this can tailor their responses to individuals, not even to genders, but to actual people. For sure. I think different employees have different reasons for burnout. So I think the best advice we could have is talk to your employees, find out what specifically they're struggling with and building tailored, personalized responses to those issues. Right. So these are really universal themes that have nothing necessarily to do with the pandemic, which maybe it'll never be over. It seems like (laughs) I don't know anyone that has not been infected at some point to some degree at this point. But these seem like universal kind of ideas. I think burnout has been a festering problem across the workforce even before the pandemic. But I think what the pandemic did was bring this to the forefront. And it's something now that people are talking about people are thinking about and people are actually trying to address. And to that question we talked with in the beginning here at the start of the interview, which is that a greater percentage of women would like to leave if they had the opportunity. What is your best thought on how to make sure that people don't feel that way? Because there's a talent management issue pretty much across the board in the economy. Yes. Right now, uh, 49% of government workers say they're more likely to leave their organization in the next year compared to only 34% of the general population. So I think we've been talking a lot about burnout. I do think burnout is a great way to start really figuring out how to keep your people is really focusing on addressing burnout as a systemic problem at your agency. And have you talked to OPM about these findings and have you compared your work against some of the surveys they do? And they've been doing these pulse surveys and so forth and not sure how much they really tell anybody, but any thoughts there? We have not talked to OPM specifically about these findings, but I believe our polling is slightly different than some of the work that OPM has been doing. 
Any final thoughts here on your findings? I just think that the great resignation is a tremendous challenge for federal agencies. And the more they can do to really focus on keeping their highly talented government workers, the better off they'll be in the, in the long run. Melissa Jezior is the CEO of Eagle Hill Consulting. Thanks so much for joining me. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to that research at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. 
I would describe it, hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my
my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.